Boss Uncaged is a weekly podcast that releases the origin stories of business owners and entrepreneurs as they become uncaged trailblazers. In each episode, our hosts, S.A. Grant and guests construct narrative accounts of their collective business journeys and growth strategies. Learn key success habits and how to stay motivated through failure, all while developing a boss uncaged mindset. Break out of your cage and welcome our host, S.A. Grant. Welcome, welcome back to Boss Uncaged Podcast. So today's show, I'm going to deem this particular boss the do-gooder boss, and he's also a knight of Italy as well, just to kind of put things in perspective for you. But I want you to kind of tell our audience a little bit more about who you are, Brent. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Um, you nailed it. I'm a do-gooder. I'm an entrepreneur. I like to create things. I like to build things. Uh, I like to challenge the status quo. Uh, and, um, you know, I really believe in using business to create social impact in the world. Uh, and, you know, what that, what that means to me is um, doing things differently. Uh, it's not, you know, it's beyond the Apple think differently. It's, it's doing things differently. Um, and I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, you know, serial entrepreneur. I don't know if co-founded 15 plus companies in some way, shape or form, some moderate successes, lots more failures. And, um, but I, I'm just a creator, man. Cool. Very, very cool. So, I mean, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. You're, you're saying you're a creator, but in the beginning, I mean, you started off more so on like the, the stock market, more so looking at commodities. Like how did you get into that to begin with? So, um, you know, like the rest of us, we get programmed from a very, very early age around what success looks like and uh, what success is meant to look and feel like and um, what the path and quotes is to success. Um, and uh, even though I grew up in a, in a family that was, you know, middle class uh, in Northern California, uh, my, my father was a, um, a cinematographer, a director of photography, very much an artist uh, focused on storytelling um, and the art of picture making. Um, and uh, my mom was an entrepreneur uh, who uh, helped um, you know, build large companies and, and build a big company herself. And I got to see the um, dichotomy between the two um, of chasing the art and chasing the money and as I got into college, um, some things went awry in my family and um, the business that was uh, being built uh, for many years um, for a number of different reasons went bankrupt and my family went bankrupt when my freshman year of college and I was a uh, freshman at the University of Southern California uh, and I was really enjoying my time there and we were already taking student loans and things to, to make that work, but then it was real. Um, we didn't have any more money to to pay for tuition, and that's a no joke tuition school. Um, you know, at the time it was like fifty k a year, or something silly. And so when I graduated, I had something like two hundred thousand dollars of student loans debt um, in that range. And so um, I started looking around me and seeing all my friends graduating from business school and communication school, going to become investment bankers and work at the big four and the management consultants, and everyone chasing the money and. I knew that wasn't my route in terms of like taking a job. I was always kind of an entrepreneurial, um, I guess, disobedient spirit. Uh, and, uh, and I decided to uh, start a company with my best friend at the time um, to, uh, who had worked in the, it was actually commodities, physical commodities.
commodities. It wasn't commodities trading um, like uh, on a desk, but physical import export of construction materials, believe it or not. And he had worked um, uh, the previous summer uh, for a company and had knew kind of how to do it and had some supply chain connections. And he and I, not knowing anything at the age of 21 or something, 22, started a commodities import export firm in LA and Dubai. And the sole purpose of that business was to chase and make as much money as quick as possible so I could pay back my student loans, thinking that once I got there, that fulfillment uh, would, would, uh, would follow. You know, you know that when you achieve a goal that you really uh, have wanted your whole life and you got that full body pride and fulfillment, or maybe if you have kids or, you know, niece or nephew or something, you just, you just feel that like, it's like, it's from the inside, right? You know, like, wow, I expected that feeling. Um, when I got to a certain financial goal and success in that commodities business and, um, big shocker, um, it didn't, didn't happen. We, we got to the financial goal, but the, the feeling was very, uh, very empty. Uh, and, um, that was a uh, first aha moment for me at a very early age. I think I was like 23, 24, uh, around the, the lesson of chasing, um, what society says will make you happy, um, early on and then getting there and realizing um, you know, it actually, wow, this is deviated from what makes me actually happy. I guess society. Hmm. And that's been kind of a, a repeating lesson I've had to learn um, throughout my entrepreneurial career. You get into something and you get in, you get in, you get in, you're in the jar, you can't read the label. Sometimes you don't want to read the label. And, you know, sometimes you, you kind of lose that perspective and you chase and chase and you chase um, and you disconnect from that anchoring point of joy that is inside you that you know makes you happy or makes you smile from the inside out. And over the course of my career and various successes and failures, um, I really had to learn, um, I've learned the hard way uh, that, um, that it's, the, it's the hardships that become the seedlings for joy. I think that's definitely interesting. I mean, just listening to part of your journey. I mean, obviously you come from an entrepreneurial background with your mom being an entrepreneur, your dad being in, in the movie industry. And then you said, okay, you know what? I need to figure these things out. I need to, you know, bankrupt. I need to figure out this $200,000. And you went into like money chasing, but you realized that that wasn't something that filled you as an individual. So like on that journey, like, like after you kind of figured out, okay, you made the money, you know, student loans are potentially paid off. Like what, what was the next step in your, in your journey? To kind of Dude, I wish it was that easy. Oh, I made the money, we paid the loans off and what's next? No, it was, we, we closed a multi-million dollar deal on paper. We're millionaires. And within a year, it all fell apart. Uh, it was a global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, 2010 in that range. Uh, and um, what was millions became hundreds of thousands, became tens of thousands. I walked with like 40K, 50K. Um, and that business shut down because it was based off of credit and construction. And both of those died back in the global financial crisis. Um, and it was uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me. And going back to going back to this, you know, hardships being the seedlings of, of future joy. When you're, you know, when you're in it and you are going through some shit, and it is tough, and um, it's really hard to feel good <laughs> about what might come in the future because um, negative and our negativity bias, you know, makes everything feel so heavy. Um, but as I take a step back on my, you know, 15 years of being an entrepreneur, and even if I look at my, you know, uh, my my career and my life, I'm uh, 37. Um, the, the things, the shitty things that happened to me, um, all led to beautiful renaissances of joy at some later point, some quickly, some took much longer and the commodities thing was no different. Um, the business collapsed, but it was, um, it was a huge aha moment for me to redirect that my entrepreneurial spirit into something that made me feel whole 
um, rather than empty. And that's when I, and this was about 2010, uh, 2009, 2010, and that's when I dedicated uh, my life to saying, I want to use business to create social impact. I called myself at the time a philanthropreneur. Um, now we call it social entrepreneur, right? Um, I, but uh, you know, at the time that I wanted to be, a, I didn't want to wait to be a Rockefeller or something and then give all the money. I wanted to give as I went. I wanted to embed cause into cogs, cost of goods sold of my businesses. So as the businesses grew in scale, so did the social impact. And I've been on that journey here now for over a decade, uh, just over 12 years here, um, saying, how do we use business to create positive impact in the world? Because for me, um, look, when you're broke, there, there's a bell curve here of, of happiness, right? Um, of like when you have no money, life sucks. It's really hard. Um, uh, and it's very difficult. But they actually did a study that said um, the, in the median, this is across the entire United States, but the median amount of where um, exponential happiness between zero and about $70,000 of, of, uh, of annual household income is exponential increase in happiness. And then after 70, uh, up until about uh, a couple hundred grand, it's incremental. And then after a certain amount of money being made, it's actually decreasing. It becomes this bell curve um, to where you have too much and it actually, and you, that chase becomes the only thing that matters. You end up, you know, you get there to success, whatever that may be, you have financial, you have the fancy things, but you look around and you don't have the things that actually matter in life. Your relationships, the connections, the experiences, your family, whatever it may be. Now this is, you know, not all rich people uh, of massive wealth have that, right? Some have their head on straight and have done it right uh, and build wealth. But um, what I found is that in this bell curve, uh, for me, using profit in a business and business as the most powerful economic engine to create uh, impact in the world in a positive manner is what fills my soul with with happiness, um, and it's it's why I do what I do. Um, it's not that I uh, geek so much and love digital marketing and e-commerce and like oh my god, it's the e-commerce that gets me you know so excited. No, I love giving healthcare to my entire staff and team, the best PPO money can buy for them and their employees. We're not venture backed, but we invest directly into our team so that they can have a quality of life that is positive. We invest into mental health. We invest, We have a parental leave policy that rivals Google's. Uh, four month paid 100% uh, with a fifth month optional. Um, and so things like this for me is how we use business from the inside out to, to create social change. And that's that's really what makes me what makes me tick. And so that, that commodities business failing was the biggest, oh man, in hindsight, <laughs> thank God, because it, it, it got me off my, I was following a program and then it, it shook me and said, oh, let's go back this direction. This feels more aligned. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, when you think about commodities, you think about like the market and obviously there's always money in that. And then you said that the bubble pop that failed, right? So right now, like how are you establishing and making revenue? Are you doing it through your speaking engagements? I mean, what services do you have to be able to maintain, to be able to give back that much? So um, after, to give the timeline and connect the dots here, uh, after the commodities business failed, I started a digital e-commerce platform uh, like an Etsy for socially conscious brands. It was called Roost. Uh, we were based in Los Angeles. And um, the idea was to be like an Amazon or an Etsy, but for brands to give back. We did the ratings, the, um, the aggregation. It was all dropship. We built the technology platform and we spent about four or five years uh, doing that. Um, we were fortunate to get a lot of press and Forbes name you need to know and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and we had all the really great things, including a really great team, except we didn't have a great business model. And we were in a, a, a small industry um, that was kind of dead on arrival of the venture scene. And we needed to raise a lot more money to, to go uh, scale that. So that business too failed after about four years. Um, and that was a tough one because that was my baby. That was a passion. That was a, like my first love on the business side. And um, there was real grief there uh, from that. Uh, but what happened when that business failed, like the previous one, I, I, you know, anytime a business fails, I look at it and get to take a, a postmortem and say, okay, if this didn't work out financially, or even if it did work out financially, what are the takeaways? What are the learning lessons from that? And so I, I did that when I want to shut that business down. And what we did really well um, in that business was digital marketing. Uh, we were one of the first advertisers on Facebook very early on and from the operator's seat uh, with a 360 degree approach. Um, we started to be uh, very, very good at full stack marketing. And so I started doing that as an advisory service and consulting service um, when that, that uh, marketplace failed. And then that, uh, this was eight years ago, that dovetailed into now Stealth Venture Labs, which is um, our, our digital marketing and e-commerce um, agency and accelerator. And inside of Self Venture Labs, uh, we help brands, e-commerce, direct-to-consumer brands uh, scale through growth plateaus. Um, so we've helped companies like Home Chef uh, go from five million in revenue very early to hundred million in revenue. Last year, a company called Factor um, go uh, scale and, and sell to HelloFresh. Um, uh, brand names like that all the way down brands you've never heard of, right? Um, that are uh, really you know nascent and early stage. And then we also help brands come to market who have ideas or trying to reposition. Um, we have a multinational corporation where we're that direct consumer arm. Um, and then um, guys like Kevin Hart um, yeah, come to us and, uh, and say, hey, we, we have a, a supplement brand that we're looking to bring to market. And we help them come to market and establish uh, kind of the, the first product market fit. The brand's called Vita Hustle. Um, and so um, everything in there, and those two, those are our two labs. One's called a growth lab. The other one's called the founder lab. Growth is obviously kind of growth uh, focused on acceler acceleration. Um, and then founder labs are incubators. And then we have Impact Lab. And Impact Lab um, is our nonprofit, our 1C3, that teaches all of those tools uh, to disadvantaged kids, um, uh, primarily kids of color uh, from all over the United States, um, how to start businesses from the ground up in the digital age, um, and um, really mindset training and kind of technical skill training, um, and then give them $5,000 grants to, to start their own e-commerce stores and do the first Facebook ads and, and whatnot to really kind of you know, teach them how to fish. Nice. So, I mean, obviously there was multiple stepping stones to, to get to where you are right now. Right. And obviously I mm -hmm. think every, for you, what it sounds like is like you learn from every single failure. So like my next question is like, you always hear about startup businesses and they always say like the first five years is when companies, you know, they, they may or may not fail. If you make it past five years, then you made it. What was the turning point for you to say, okay, this company is failing. Cause again, keep in mind, three years, you maybe have no profits. And then all of a sudden, year four, year five, you start to show profit. So what was that determinant factor for you to say, okay, these two concepts have failed for you? So the first one didn't make it past two years, the commodity business. And um, that that was, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to like be a genius to say, oh, we're out of money and this is over. Um, second one was right at that four-year mark, the marketplace. Um, and we went to go raise our Series A, had some term sheets on the table, and then um, the market collapsed around us. Um, in terms of marketplaces and venture investing, and we were already kind of been in, a, in too much of a cottage industry. And, um, and so that one too, we ran out of money. 
Um, and it was, it was over because the business model, we had no MRR. We had, it was just, it was a tough business model, low margins. Um, and then this business, I was determined not to raise capital. Uh, I actually became an EIR, Entrepreneur in Residence, uh, at a venture fund um, in between um, when the marketplace failed and, and stealth. Um, and they, you know, when, when you're an EIR there, they offer you kind of a blank check, million dollars typically to say, hey, go start your next thing. We believe in you as a founder. As long as we like it, here's your startup capital. And I decided not to do that. Um, and the reason being is because uh, I think my avant-garde des desire to use business to not generate solely profits as its sole purpose, you know, triple bottom line, more focus. And, um, and so my desire to build slower, more diligently, have a little more control and to do it the, the way that I wanted um, is how I started Stealth with $500. And um, we've been running this for, for eight years. And we've had varying different versions of uh, team and responsibilities and focus um, over the years. We've had, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn the most um, as an entrepreneur is that you have an opportunity to listen to the market. Um, and I say it's an opportunity to listen to the market because not a lot of people take that opportunity and, uh, and, and, and do it. A lot of people are very stubborn. At, um, at, and I was one of them. I learned this the hard way, which is I have a vision. I'm a visionary. I see the world in a different place. And I see the world um, this direction. And that's what I raise money for. And that's what we're doing. Then the market's like over here. It's kind of quiet and soft and, and a little bit less, you know, boisterous. And it's giving you data and it's giving you inputs and it's giving you some information that, that you need to listen to. Um, but I, I kind of bulldozed that and said, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. We're going to be this, 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 and this. And if you can continue to raise capital, if you're in that game, right? If you can continue to sell investors on your vision, then you might be able to continue until one day that the, the market catches up to your vision, right? But in my case, we weren't able to. And so, um, what I've had to do over the years here now with Stealth Venture Labs um, is, is over the course of each iteration of this company, uh, both team and focus and time, and then we now have three divisions, or it used to be just one, um, I have to have my ear to the ground, and I have to uh, recalibrate and center around the core point that is the center of every entrepreneur's, um, I would say, success, which is what pain are you solving for a customer? And how has that pain shifted or changed in this world and this environment? Our customers are e-commerce companies and brands. Their pains were very different February of 2020 than they were April 2020, than they were April of 21, than they were April 22. It has shifted and evolved tremendously. Um, and with privacy and with iOS 14 and with all these different things, these technical things inside of the, the marketing and e-commerce landscape, we have had to put our ear to the ground and recalibrate our services, our value proposition, our pricing, our team, our model, all of that, um, to make sure that we are, we are relevant in the market for what, our, what the pains of the customers are today. Yeah, I think it, it is. I mean, you bring a solid point to the table, and, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here, right? I mean, I'm, sure. you're saying you want to listen to the market, right? And it's, and not to say you're following trends, but you're listening to the market versus listening to your vision 100%. But I think the average person, they're going to go after the trends and not really listen to the market. And, and I want people to understand there's a difference between those two. So I want you to kind of talk about that, that to kind of clarify that a little bit. Trends are an extrapolation. Trends are what has happened in the past 
analyzed today with an extrapolation of what we think it will then do. Market data is what is happening today, right now, in the market, looking into the future and saying, this is going to continue with a little bit of with a little bit of predictive analysis. And so they're not so inter they're not so disconnected, right? Because the trends lead to market data. So, for example, just to give it, you know, to give you a, a sense, uh, December 26th last year, it was one of the first times, I think the first time, the only time in 20 years that I've seen CPMs, cost per thousand impressions, rise after Christmas. Mm-hmm. How the F is that possible, right? Well, turns out we're not operating in a true market environment with iOS 14 and people escaping from Facebook and going into TikTok and Snap and all these other uh, platforms for diversifying media. Um, they still have earnings and reports to hit, et cetera. So all these different, all these different reasons in there. So that is a market point that I'm looking at. The market telling me, okay, CPMs are not going down, right? The trend is that they're continuing to rise. Now I'm listening to the market and say, if trends continue to rise, if this continues, what are going to be the pains of our customers? And then you start to stratify your customer pains. You have SMBs, you have medium size, and then you have enterprise, right? And when you look at that pyramid, they have different pain points all along the way. Your small, medium-sized businesses at the bottom are going to have a very hard time getting a single channel and in-platform reporting to work. And so their pains are they're going to need to go back to days of old, full-stack marketing, owned audiences, owned data, multiple touch points, their own dashboards and reporting, right? Versus you go up into enterprise, these guys actually were able to, to weather the storm a lot better than the small brands because they're in the market, right? But their pains have now also changed, which is it costs them more to acquire a customer than it did previously, which means that the pricing model as an agency that you work with them is probably going to become untenable over time unless you, you take a look at how you're pricing, how you look at it, you know, maybe you're in performance goals. And so, so to go back to what is a trend versus what is the market, Trends lead into market data, into listening to the market. The market is Tesla laid off 10% of its employees and um, they're not hiring anymore. The, you know, the market is um, almost overnight uh, salaries uh, rose 20 or 30% for, for most people on the market. And you have a great recession and people moving around, right? The, mar- the market is lots of little data points, some big, some small, that with lots of trends feeding into it. And then how you... How, does, how is it impacting and affecting your specific business? And then there's a gut check being like, okay, I know this business. What do I think is going to happen? What have I seen in the past? In my world, you know, it's like, oh, can, this dates me, can spam compliance rolled out, right? Oh, no, email marketing is a dead channel. Well, is it? Did it? No, just, you know, it's just changed, right, over time. And then you've got... And so when you, when you look at the trend analysis uh, over time, you can start to see some patterns and then you have to take an analysis of what's happening in the market around you to extrapolate and say, how do we adapt? Oh, very cool, very cool. No exact answer. So, I mean, I mean, obviously you're dropping breadcrumbs, right? And I, w- I want the listener that's listening to obviously, if all this breadcrumbs become a mouthful, then take them in small bites. Yeah. So on this, this journey that, that we're talking about, I mean, we started from point A where we're kind of continuing down this journey. Yeah. 
how long have you been on this path? I mean, I'm talking about from the time that you decided to start this commodity company to where you are right now, how many years? Because again, the perception, it may be viewed as being an overnight success, but in reality, no. how long has it took? No. Um, so I, I'm actually physically in Florence, Italy right now. Um, I live in Italy two, three months a year. It's my passion. It's where my soul's at peace. Um, we have a business here now, a separate portfolio company. Um, and uh, in 2006, 16 years ago, something went really wrong for me in college. I was a junior in college. It was after my folks went bankrupt. I continued. Um, I had a, a, a pretty shitty event happen. Um, and I was going down a path and that changed overnight. And um, my only dream in life was to come to Italy, uh, meet my Italian relatives and learn to speak the language. I didn't grow up speaking the language. Um, and then somehow I went down a program in college and went down a different path of what I think I should do, and blah, 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 leadership inside of an organization. And then that evaporated and then I said, well, crap, I'm going to get back to me and what makes me happy. And I went to the student abroad, uh, study abroad office and found a program in Florence. I'd never been to Italy, signed up. And six weeks later, I was living here with a family. And so this was 2006. And um, here we are uh, 16 years later. I was 20 years old. I'm now 37. I was almost, I was about, just about to turn 21. Um, and um, my path to my entrepreneurial dreams started on that plane ride to Italy. Because when I landed, I took an intro to entrepreneurship course here. Um, and I wasn't the lemonade stand guy. I just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't me. I, you know, I, I believe entrepreneurs are, are both made and born. I don't believe it's just entrepreneurs are born. I believe people learn and discover and find entrepreneurship. And it's, it's, um, um, it's both. And so um, my intro to entrepreneurship here, course here uh, changed my life. I had an amazing professor, read Howard Schultz's um, biography, uh, Pour Your Heart Into It. I read Seth Godin's Purple Cow. And I was like, man, this is me. The other people think about the world the same way I do. Wow. Okay. And so that was that inspired me. I got back to college uh, six months later, back to, to USC, and I joined the entrepreneur program. And that's what started everything, uh, my journey. And I remember when I was graduating, when we started the commodities trading, let me just be really clear. I had no effing clue what I was doing. Zero. I didn't know anything about commodities. I didn't know anything. You know, I bought commodities trading for dummies. I mean, I'm looking. I'm, I mean, come on. Like, I was really, really knowing nothing about any of that. But I remember taking a lawyer who I had met, um, who came in and spoke in one of my classes. He was an entrepreneurial lawyer. Uh, I remember asking him out to lunch mm. because USC, um, I had a mentor and USC is really big on this. They, they teach you that your network is your net worth. And um, man, that couldn't be more true. And so I really took that to heart. I started building connections and really taking people and asking them to be my mentorship. I mean, I asked Mark Benioff to be my mentor. I asked Bob McKnight to found a quick so I mean, you know, you name it. I was like, would you, would you be my mentor? Would you be my mentor? And you know, I was just like constantly trying to like feed into these systems and I would hustle to try to find their emails and sometimes they would respond and sometimes not. But I took this lawyer out to lunch and we were telling him about our idea for this commodities business. And uh, we were asking him simple questions like, what is a company? <laughs> what does it mean to be an LLC or a corporation? Or, you know, I was 21 or 22. And, um, and he, he gave us, you know, graciously all the answers, and what it means. And, and at the end of the lunch, uh, I'll never forget it. Uh, I was with my, my business partner, my best friend at the time, Peter. Um, and uh, Rick turns to us to learn. And he says, okay, guys, difference between an entrepreneur and a entrepreneur mm. is, what you do right, is what you do right now. Do you want to come back to my office and incorporate? Or do you want to go be a entrepreneur? Mm. And we looked at each other and we said, 
let's go, let's do it. And I, I remember very specifically being like, you know, at that age, you kind of talk to your parents about everything and you want to run it by them. And I was like, I don't want to tell my parents. They're going to tell me all the reasons why it's a bad idea, why I shouldn't, why I should go get a job. And that's when we incorporated our first company. It's called Cardinal Trading Company. And, um, and uh, that was our first one. And I remember thinking back then, future me will thank me for starting now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I do. I thank that little guy uh, for, for getting going. Because that path, circuitous as it was, led me to be sitting here talking to you in this beautiful city of Florence. Um, you know, having failed forward in a lot of different ways to the path that I'm, that I'm on. Well, I mean, I'm just listening to your story. I mean, obviously, like you're a big component of growing on the e-commerce space. And, and I think in the fact that you jumped into the commodities, or I mean, it's, it's very similar in a sense, right? I mean, obviously, there's a product and essentially you're right. drop shipping that product for a profit, right? So it's the same exact model. Cut out the middleman. We've just been cutting out the middleman. One was a physical bumper and steel. Yeah. The other was yoga clothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, now you're, you're doing it at scale, but I get, I think yeah. if you didn't have that, that, that 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 bundle of information to begin with, that learning curve to start off with, with something such as big as commodities, to where you can kind of take that information and now you're highly successful in in the e-com space. I think it's a cause and effect, right? And I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay. No, you're right. You're right. I, it absolutely is. I mean, that supply chain, that supply chain, cutting out the middleman and passing on value to a customer, is the fundamental critical success factor to most things online. Right. That's what made that everyone likes to save money. Everyone likes to save time. Right. And unless you have something that is a category definer. Right. Uh, one of our clients is, is Mudwater. Right. Where it's a it's a, um, a coffee alternative, uh, you know, with um, uh, cacao and mushrooms and you know all that kind of stuff. It, there was no other alternative on the on the market like them prior. So they're a category definer. and It's not a price to the bottom thing. But if you're a widget seller um, of any type or clothing apparel seller, and you are the most expensive in the category online, it's very difficult to win and compete unless there is um, no other comparable alternatives. And so that commodities business, we went direct to the mills and sold to the construction companies. And we cut out the entire supply chain on the middle side where everyone was making a market to market markup. Same thing that we do in e-commerce. Nice. Very nice. So, I mean, there's a time travel back, right? I mean, obviously, you're talking about a supply chain and just look at your career as a supply chain, right? If there's any time you can go back and cut out the middleman to help you progress a lot faster, mm-hmm. when would you go back and what would you say to yourself? You know, I, I don't know if I would go back and say, who do I cut out quicker and where and what? I, I think that knowing what I know now, mm-hmm. right? And yesterday, so um, I'm a big meditator these days, right? And, uh, you know, I'm not like a sit cross-legged and say, oh, my God, that's not me. That's not my brand of meditation, right? But being able to drop in into silence or even do a walking meditation and get into a space where I'm out of my body a little bit and kind of separating my thoughts from my reality, it helps me drop into a space of gratitude. And yesterday I was, I was walking along the banks of the river here in Florence um, uh, on the Arno, and I was just dropped into just a, a really high level of gratitude, um, thinking about the only reason today, yes, today, yesterday specifically, that I was um, there was because this shitty thing happened to me in college that at the time was the biggest um, you know, kerfuffle I had been in in a, in a long time. And I, I just got so grateful for that. Um, realignment that happened because it put me back on my path of joy. Mm-hmm. And if I go back to a lot of the other hardships that happened in my life, I strayed 
deeply and hard without consciously knowing it away from my joy. And then a big market correction of some sort had to happen to bring me back on it, whether it be a divorce or a business failure or whatever it is. And so I don't know if my advice to my former self is like, hey, cut out this middleman. My advice to my former self is, hey, don't wait for uh, you know, catastrophic events to happen to realign with your joy. Get back on, get, invest in your joy daily and stay rooted in the things that make you smile from the inside out and don't get as caught up in what you think you need to do or what society tells you need to do, what your friends are doing or the jealousy or the comparison or the whatever. Um, and, and, uh, and just focus on, on your joy and don't stray so far because when you stray, and this is happening multiple times in my life, when you stray from it, um, your moral compass, uh, it, it has, it, there's too much of a cognitive dissonance happening. And um, you end up depressed, you end up sad, you end up unhappy, um, uh, and it, it, never, it never works out. There's a lot of hardship that comes after that if you straight for too long. So um, it, it, it's, less about, it's less about a specific piece of advice of, hey, cut this person out, cut that person out, do this, do, don't do business with this person, do business with that person. And it's more about, does this bring you joy? It's kind of a binary question, but we, get, we make it really complicated. Um, oh no, but I need to do it and X, Y, and Z. Um, does it bring you joy? Yes or no? If no, do less of it. <laughs> if yes, do more of it. Somewhat binary. So, I mean, finishing on that last sentence about bringing you joy, let, let's talk about like your family life. I mean, obviously you grew up in a household where you had one parent was in the movie industry. The other parent was an entrepreneur and probably, you know, right now you're talking about you're in Italy for at least, you know, one quarter out of the year. How do you currently juggle like that work-life balance with your family? Um, so my birth mom passed away when I was seven from cancer. And my dad remarried um, when I was about eight uh, to a woman I, I call my mom. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I call my birth mom and my earth mom, right? And, and in, that, in, that, in that range, um, I, I really always put family first uh, as a big priority for me. And um, what I realized a few years ago is going back to that strength from your joy is I was self-sacrificing in a lot of ways, things that brought me joy on behest of, of my family. I don't have kids yet. Um, I have dogs, um, but uh, I, I do want I do want children. And, and you know, I'm working towards that uh, actually with my girlfriend. Um, you know, we both have a vision of that uh, here in, in the future. But um I realized that if I'm going to be the best version of me, I need to invest into the things that bring me the most joy. Italy is the place for me that brings me the most joy. Now, would it be easier if it was um, New York or Austin or San Diego or Hawaii? Yeah, um, in terms of time and time change and all of that. Um, but uh, what I've done is I've, I've created friends and family also out here. I've reconnected with my roots and my Italian heritage on my mom's side. Um, in Sardinia, and so I, I've I've created an extended family additionally here, and then um, I stay in touch, uh, you know, with my with my blood family uh, back uh, back in the states, um, you know, through FaceTime and connecting, and and also um, we'll be planning a trip to bring them bring them out here. It's not the easy life, um, even though it sounds glamorous, uh, to live in Italy a couple months out of the year. Um, it is, um, but it is very soul filling for me there's a frequency here that just matches with mine 
Um, and every day that I'm here and every time that I get to speak the language, which I do now, um, it is like um, um, a little piece of my dream coming true again uh, when, I, when I was a boy. And so the work-life balance is about um, how do I work very efficiently um, to maximize my time, trust in my team, and um, do the things, the, the Pareto principle, the 20% of things and get 80% of the results um, because I don't believe in working, I don't believe in the hustle and grind culture. I really think it's toxic uh, to today's world. I believe uh, it's not just about rise and grind. Yeah, you have to work hard. Yeah, there's times we got to put in the extra hours. But I do believe that there is an efficiency quotient that most people miss. And they do busy work and hard work just for their own, just for its own sake, rather than doing the smart work and taking time to take a step back and saying, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Right, but it takes a minute to plan how to do that straight line, rather than to go kind of all around and secure this route, just because we're anxious to get going. So, how I balance work life is when I'm home, I'm very present. I'm an ambivert, which means I'm a uh, a a extroverted introvert. <laughs> I'm a social introvert. I've been charged by being alone, but I like being out with friends and family. Mm. Um, and so, uh, when I am home, I'm usually a homebody. And I'll spend time on Sundays. I'll go see my folks. I'll go, you know, spend a weekend with my brother and his kids. Um, and I'm not bouncing around to clubs and this, that, that's not my, that's not my jam. Right. Um, and so I really uh, now understand that before I can put family first, I have to put me first. And when I prioritize my physical and my mental health first, I show up better for Eddie and everybody in my life uh, after that. Um, and so it's a delicate balance and um, it's harder when you're in Italy because you kind of work the reverse shift hours on the morning when working American hours is nighttime and things like that. And it takes a little bit of um, adaptation. Uh, but, um, you know, when you walk outside and I get to be in a place that where my soul's at peace, it's, uh, it's all worth it. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, earlier on, you, you, you kind of dropped a couple books and I think you had mentioned like the purple cow, you had mentioned the, um, the guide for dummies with commodities. So I want you to kind of like make, make a recommendation for like top two books or just books that kind of resonate outside of those two books in your mind that kind of help you to get to where you are on your journey. I mean, the, the first, the first two books, the must read for every entrepreneur is uh, thinking grow rich, Napoleon Hill. It's a, just a no brainer. Um, it is the, the Bible about, uh, been around still applicable for a hundred and, you know, hundred some odd years now. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the principle that he covers in there is the law of attraction, um, of how to make your thoughts become a reality. And, um, that was the most influential book in my entrepreneurial career, hands down. Um, and then the next one is, um, Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. And that one, um, then changed my perspective, specifically the begin with end in mind, uh, side of things of, of, um, being at your own funeral. Um, and writing uh, the eulogy from four different people in your life's point of view. And when you anchor to that exercise of understanding of how you want to be remembered, you start to really realign your priorities rather quick. Hmm. Um, and and so then it, the, with the combination of those two books, then I've built on that. I mean, I've read, man, in the last 10 years, I've read about 300 books. By the way, I have ADD and I'm dyslexic. So when I say read, I'm listening to on Audible. I'm listening at two or three X speed. I can't physically read um, well. And so like when I say read, I unlocked reading through Audible. Uh, so for anybody else out there that has a struggle reading and I didn't have time to, I would go for a walk um, and I listen to a book on two, three X speed. And it is the way you can crush through so much beautiful content. 
Um, those two really were, were game changers. And I think the one thing that um, Napoleon Hill um, misses in his Think and Grow Rich is what we now know on the neuroscience side is like what the law of attraction is, um, which is in order for you to be able to, you can't just put a thought out there. I want to be rich. I want to be rich. I want to be rich. Right. And that, it just doesn't work like that where you just put a thought out there. It just goes into the kind of the ether. Um, but when you attach a, an elevated emotion um, to it, when you get into a high vibration of, of like gratitude or love or thankfulness um, and you feel right now what it would like, what it would be like right now to one day achieve that goal or have that thing. But today, now you're feeling it and you're truly in it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're tricking your neurochemistry, your body to feel like you've already gotten the thing that you are trying for. And now when you put the thought out there, it's not the opposite end of the magnet that pushes it away because you, when you're in lack or scarcity, I want it so bad and I'm so afraid I'm never going to get it. That actually pushes our dreams farther away. When you come from a place of gratitude and wholeness and fulfillment, that's what attracts it back. And that was the piece that I didn't connect the dots on in the Napoleon Hill side of things until I really started diving into the meditation world and studying Joe Dispenza um, and Bruce Lipton and really understanding um, how our, the, the, the neurochemistry of our body functions um, combined with like Western medicine, Western science, Eastern meditation, and then kind of the entrepreneurial lens of it all. And using that to retrain my subconscious mind in the mornings and in the evenings, um, to go in the direction of my dreams. And then all of a sudden over time, things start happening from like, well, that's weird. <laughs> right. And, uh, and I'm no longer, I'm no, and like, like I just put that out to the universe. I can't believe this is happening already. And then you start to like see that and then you're like, I believe this is real now. So let's start playing with it, right? And I remember one of the things I did is uh, I put an affirmation saying, unexpected checks arrive in the mail. Now, who gets checks? I don't get checks. I never, I mean, it's, you know, like nobody gets checks, right? Um, and this was like six months uh, of kind of, I was just subconscious priming. It wasn't just this, I had a handful of things. And then that year, I got a tax return uh, for 10 Gs for the first time that, uh, that I've, nev- I've never, never, I've always owned because I'm an entrepreneur, you need to pay more and blah, 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 right? Um, I'd never gotten a tax return, ever. And I was like, okay, this is weird, um, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, it's very interesting. And so I've been playing with the neuroscience of um, the subconscious training and priming, which is the extension of the Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, classic text, all centered around how thoughts become things um, and how to, and, and how that has uh, harnessing the power of, of, of your mind to create riches, however you define them. It doesn't need to be financial. It could be heart-centered. It could be love. It could be whatever. Um, riches as however you define them using your, 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 your thoughts to, to manifest and create. So, I mean, let's just spin down that rabbit hole a little bit deeper, right? So let's say <laughs> five words of wisdom, right? Like say I'm an entrepreneur and, and I'm listening to you and I, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm like, okay, I was thinking about getting into commodities or I wanted to get into e-com. Like what words of wisdom would you give to help me on my journey to continue to move forward? So first is um, be really clear on what it is you're trying to create, why you're trying to create it. 
And before you go into the how, make sure that what and why are rooted in things that bring you joy in some fashion or are stepping stones uh, to get you to your joy. Because the what and the why then helps you determine the how. I want to start a company. Why? Because I want financial freedom. Okay. Why do you want financial freedom? Okay. Well, that's, that's what you, you envision as, as success. Okay. How do you build a company that, that gets you financial freedom? Well, there's two ways. You can build a lifestyle company, you can build a, you know, a venture-backed company. Um, which one is more aligned with the type of financial freedom that you are motivated by? Um, are you willing to get up to the, the plate and swing at the fences on the venture back game and have feast or famine, right? Or do you want a more slow and steady growth where there's still risk, um, but maybe more control? No, no bad answer, but the, but the how comes after the what and the why. And the, and the what and the why should be rooted in the things that bring you joy. And to get rooted in the things that bring you joy, I recommend people going out to a park or, you know, on their patio or, or wherever, just a quiet moment in their own room or their office, turning off all stimulus. And if they're a meditator, drop a new meditation. If they just need a quiet moment, that's fine. Put on some, you know, some relaxing music, whatever. Get back to your child's mind and like close your eyes for a second and visualize when you were a kid, a moment that made you just absolutely smile from ear to ear. And you know, really drop into that, that memory and think about that and like really try to relive it. What were the smells and what were the tastes? And when you do that, you start to get reconnected to your joy that we all have when we were kids that we lose as we get older. And what I recommend you doing, you start with that memory and you write that memory down and then you write any other memories or any other things that give you that feeling. And in the beginning, it's going to be hard because we're so removed from that uh, as adults from those, those things um, for me, it could be as simple as like a fresh fallen snow or like riding my bike in, in warm wind, right? I remember that as a kid, um, to being in Italy, to speaking Italian, uh, to talking, uh, speaking Italian to old little Italian, you know, grandparents is like, wow, it gave me so much joy, right? And, and making what I call a list of joy, an annual, uh, an annual thing that um, is rooted in things that make you smile from the inside out. And when you, when you center on that, when you get into the what and the why, you can start to see, is that aligned? And this is what I do regularly. I do it every three to six months. I recenter. Am I on the right track? Am I on the right track? Is what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Still connected to, to my joy. Um, and um, that helps keep us in, in line with, uh, you know, with, with the true path that will make us, you know, bring us the, the, the happiness that we're all, we're all seeking. And then I think the biggest one is just making sure you're solving a pain in the market. It's kind of that simple and that you listen to the market. Don't be so stubborn with your vision that you don't listen to the market signals coming in. You have a business hypothesis and then you have business realities. You have an opportunity to listen and adapt and evolve and adjust based upon the realities. Um, so many entrepreneurs die on the vine um, and blame so many other, other things. And I was one of them because they didn't actually listen to the market. Um, and it was their, their um, close-minded vision. Now, um, I'm, are there exceptions to this rule? Of course, right? But this is my own experience and what I've learned the hard way um, over the last 15 years. And um, even myself, I'm recentering as we speak on my list of joy, in my what and my why, as I adapt my business to the changing market making sure I'm going in the direction of the things that bring me joy 
um, because it's not money that brings me joy. It's, it's the freedom and it's the connections and et cetera. Right. And so as I look uh, uh, to my own horizon and just over the horizon, um, I want to make sure, and I want the entrepreneurs that are listening to this to make sure that they're chasing a dream that is actually theirs and is actually rooted in the things that bring them joy. Not what TechCrunch says, not what Entrepreneur and Inc. Magazine say, not what the media says, not what we've been told our entire life or what our parents think, but that actually makes them smile from the inside out. Wow, very powerful. Very, I mean, it's listening to you. I mean, I, I could definitely tell uh, you're a motivational speaker as well, too. I mean, I'll tell you, you're delivering value, but you're delivering value based upon your life experience. So with that being said, how does someone get in contact with you? Do you have a website, a social media profile? Where can they get in contact yeah. with you? Oh, thanks, man. Um, so brent.freeman at stealthventurelabs.com is the email. We respond to it. We try to respond in a couple couple days, um, you know, as as emails come in. Um, core business is stealthventurelabs.com and then Brent underscore underscore Freeman on, on Instagram. Also on LinkedIn, um, you know, but the, those are kind of the main, the main ways. Um, email is going to be the fastest, uh, fastest way to reach me. You know, I've been so focused on building my core business that I haven't really done. Um, I haven't really started the, the motivational speaking in the way that I really want to put the energy in, uh, into it. Over the next three to five years, uh, I'm going to be doing more and more uh, of that and helping do really deep mindset training for people um, uh, around kind of the methodologies that we talked a little bit about today, this list of joy, and then I have a whole kind of thing after that. But um, for now, email is the, the fastest way, bro. Very cool. Very cool. So that leads us into like the bonus round. And I have yeah. like, I always say this is like my signature bonus question because I love accents question because again, I never know w- what you're going to say. If you could spend 24 hours with anyone, that person could be dead or alive, uninterrupted for those 24 hours, who would it be and why? Hmm. So modern, um, modern days, it's Richard Branson. Um, let's go hang on Necker and let's talk business and changing the world and how to fight carbon, carbon and you know uh, climate crisis and let's talk about space and Richard Branson's just the man you know and what he's done and what he's created and how he runs companies um, and his vision of the world um, and if it was a modern you know modern day entrepreneur it'd be him um, and if it was uh, going you know back in time um, it's probably Da Vinci. And um, so here in Florence, you know, and where his influence is everywhere. Um, but that guy uh, was, the, was the Renaissance man, quite literally. And um, the discipline he had in his studies uh, is, is incredible. You know, when you, when you look at his notebooks and, and you see um, how he studied the human body and mechanisms and different subjects and the granularity and all of it. Uh, that would be a very, very fascinating conversation and time uh, to spend with with that gentleman. Very cool, very cool. I mean, Richard Branson. He, if I if I'm correct, I think he was knighted as well. So I, I want you to kind of talk about being knighted in Italy a little bit right here, right? So like, like how did this yeah. come come to pass? Yeah, Branson Branson's knighted in uh, the monarchy in in, um, in the UK, um, and so the Italian royal family ruled Italy for a thousand years, the House of Savoy. Um, and then in the uh, after World War II, um, the Italian 
uh, democracy, parliamentary democracy, republic was was established, and the monarchy was um, uh, abolished. Um, but the Italian royal family um, stayed intact and kept on the tradition of knighting and daming. They just moved over the years from being a political house of power and influence into a philanthropic house of uh, of influence. And they now are a, a group of, of men and women um, uh, from all over the, the world. They are the crown prince and the, uh, and the prince. Um, you know, they are the lines of, of the um, uh, Emanuele di, di Savoia. Um, and they support children's um, causes of, of chivalry all across the world, in Italy, um, in the United States, in um, uh, Europe in, in general. And it is a society of knights and dames that um, are committed to giving back and um, carrying on the dynastic tradition of uh, the House of Savoy. And so I was nominated um, through Friend of a Friend uh, in 2019 um, and then went through a pretty rigorous screening and diligence process with all of them and, and met all of them. And it needs to be a fit kind of on both sides. And then in August of 2020, when the world's shut down, I get a I get a notification that um, I was going to be uh, honored with uh, with knighting. And so, um, actually, ceremony happens December of this year uh, because it was all kind of postponed due due to COVID. Um, and you know, it's it, it was it's crazy to think about um, to be a part of that tradition. Um, but you know, the reason I, uh, I I accepted and wanted to do it is because of the, the commitment to the um, the causes of, of, of helping kids all over the world um, and um, to giving back and using you know the house's influence for, for social good which is exactly what aligns with my my core mission uh, in life and so um, uh, in Italian uh, night it's called cavalieri so it's cab uh, cavalieri is the, is the word for night uh, and um, the ceremony happens December of this year 2022. Nice, nice. So from now on, what I need to call you is Sir Knight Do-Gooder, right? Like that's 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 gonna be my name for you, right? Sir Knight Do-Gooder. In closing of this podcast, I usually like to give whoever I'm interviewing an opportunity to become the host of the Boston Cage podcast. So the floor is yours. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I'd love to know what you think. I mean, you have a wealth of experience. You've been, you've interviewed uh, hundreds of entrepreneurs. You have your own experience running your own businesses. Um, you know, what is your one piece of advice that, that, that you would give entrepreneurs if you could kind of look back here, um, you know, knowing what you know today? From my personal experience, it goes back to your point that you said in the middle of this podcast is about obviously you're part of a circle and part of that circle is going to kind of deem your wealth, right? So if, if you're looking mm -hmm. for wealth management, you're looking for wealth growing, you have to circle yourself with like-minded people, but people that can stretch your vision. And you can do that by going to networking. You can do that by asking for mentors, like you said. But for me, what I realized is that having a podcast gives you an opportunity to have an abundance of mentors, have an abundance of viewpoints, have an abundance of things. So if you're not thinking about creating a platform that allows you to also educate yourself and help others at the same time, you're doing yourself a disservice. Mm, I love it, man. Uh, your, your network is your net worth, right? And that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, this, uh, well, I have one more question for you. Yeah. What is the thing that brings you the most joy? For me, it's too, too, too full, right? Because I mean, when I had my stroke in 2018, 
and and I woke up in the hospital and I was like, okay, like, what am I going to do moving forward? Like, how am I going to leave behind a legacy of information? Starting this podcast kind of became that fuel for me to not only get educated on an ongoing basis, but to also leave behind my voice and the voice of many other entrepreneurs for my family and upcoming entrepreneurs. So when I wake up like this morning, I woke up at like 3.30 in the morning and I did my due diligence and I'm, I'm looking at your background, I'm looking at your bio and I'm looking at your different mm-hmm. content so that when we have this conversation, you can tell that I've done my research, but then now yeah, we have this connection. We, we, we have this connection now. That that drives me every single day. So every single day I wake up and I look at my schedule and there's a podcast or two or three or four episodes, it drives me because I know that, okay, once I'm dead and gone, this information will live on forever. I love that. And it's apparent that you did your you did your diligence, you, you dove in, and that you have a joy for what you're doing, buddy. And, and um, I'm really honored and appreciative uh, to, to be on the show today. Well, uh, again, I think I think the honor honor was mine, okay, Sir Do-Gooder. So, I mean, I appreciate you being here today. Uh, you, you delivered a lot of value to, to the listener, and I think anyone that this is one of the episodes that you kind of have to listen to it in sections. You have to take five minutes at a time, and like you said, you may have to do it three x. You may have to rewind back and listen to it again to kind of bring the, the delivery of the information that that Brent definitely gave to us today. I definitely appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Sa Grant. Over and out. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Boss Uncaged. I hope you got some helpful insight and clarity to the diverse approach on your journey to becoming an Uncaged Trailblazer. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast. If this podcast has helped you or you have any additional questions, reach out and let me know. Email me at ask at sagrant.com or drop me your thoughts via a call or text at 762 762- 233-BOSS. That's 762-233-2677. I would love to hear from you. Remember, to become a boss in cage, you have to release your inner beast. S.A. Grant, signing off. Listeners of Boss and Cage are invited to download a free copy of our host, S.A. Grant's insightful ebook, Become an Uncaged Trailblazer. Learn how to release your primal success in 15 minutes a day. Download now at www.bossuncaged.com forward slash free book.